Hello everyone and welcome back to Inside Art Scroll, where the books you read and the people who write them come to life. It's a tremendous honor to be joined today by Rabbi Nussan Sherman, longtime editor of the Art Scroll series. Thank you, Rabbi Sherman, for giving us some time to talk. Mm, pleasure to be here. Likewise. So many people know you as the, what I would call, the father of contemporary English Tyra literature, the longtime editor of Art Scroll. You've given Klai Yisrael mm. tremendous contributions in many different forms, and we'll get into some of them. But I'd love to hear about your history growing up in Newark, New Jersey, if you could tell us about mm. that. I was born in Newark. 1935, now you know the secret. And uh, I went to public school until, until I was 10 years old. And uh, it was, when I was in school, it was during World War II, obviously. And there, was, there were all sorts of controls. You, you, could not, you could not evict a tenant, you could not buy a house because of the war effort. So we were living in a rundown neighborhood, and um, I went to a school which was not the best school in the world, but it was enjoyable. You know, I, I got along with everybody. We had, in fact, it was, it was um, almost exclusively a black neighborhood at that time, and there were three white kids in the class, and that was considered a white class. I was really a pioneer of integration before Martin Luther King came along. And I played with them, we played baseball, we did all sorts of things together. It, I, I, there was no friction whatsoever. There was no day school for me to go to. The day school in Newark started a year after I began school. So when I, when I was in the fourth grade, they were up to the third grade, et cetera. And um, when I was in the sixth grade, my parents decided that uh, they, they had to send me to yeshiva because Newark did not have the proper educational system. I have to give a lot of credit to Lubavitch. It was Lubavitch at Talmud Torah, which at that time was run by Rabbi Shalom Gordon, a truly great man. And uh, he became a close friend of the family after I was away in yeshiva. And I have to give him a lot of credit for, for stimulating me, inspiring me to, to, to want to go on to learn. The, uh, he, he built up this Lubavitcher Talmudera beautifully. Then when it reached about 200 Talmudim, they sent him to uh, Worcester, Massachusetts to start a school there. And from then on, the Talmudera went down. But I was there during his, during his prime years. And um, when I was 10, I went to Taravadas in the dormitory, no less. Came home for Shabbos, but I was in the dormitory all week. And I stayed in Taravadas uh, through elementary school, Yeshivik Tana, Masifta, Beis Medrash, and this Medrashalian and Kailo. So for what grades were you in the Talmud Torah in Newark? Well, I started when I was eight years old. And I was there till I was 10. 
It was interesting, you know, that the world has changed. When, for me to get to the Talmud Torah, when he was a little kid, you know, I was eight, nine years old. I was taking two buses after school. And my parents were, were not afraid to let me travel. It never dawned on any of us that there was any danger, and there wasn't any danger. Times have changed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, how many Jewish families were living in Newark at the time? When I was growing up, believe it or not, Newark was a city of 430,000, and there were over 60,000 Jews. So it was a sizable number of Jews. Over 60,000 Jews, and there was no yeshiva. There was no day school. So no yeshiva, no day school, but there were shuls, I imagine. Oh, there were shuls. Shuls galore. And, uh, but the, the, the power structure in the city, the Jewish community was reform and conservative. And the Orthodox shuls, even the, the, the people who came to shul were mostly not Shemr Shabbos. Mm -hmm. Very few Shemr Shabbos. And uh, mostly elderly people, many of them retired, who had not been Shemr Shabbos while they were working. There were people who were Moshe Nefesh for Yiddishkeit. I mean, I, I don't want to paint a totally dark picture that's that kind of picture would not be true. But uh, by and large, the overwhelming majority were not from, the overwhelming majority did not give their children any Jewish education. I remember we, we had a mom and pop grocery store on a business street. And there are three blocks of stores, almost all of them Jewish owners. And they were such Jewish people when they, when they, when they spoke Lashon Hara, they would say, Metuni Zindikin, you're not allowed to do Hanavera. And then they would say what they wanted to say. And on Shabbos, the stores were open, and they would say, Nishan Kegen Shabbos Geret. I knew one man who, I consider him one of the great heroes that I ever knew. He came to America, and he could not get a job. He couldn't make a living. And it reached a point where he felt he had no choice. And um, he was a grocer, a grocery store. He was open Shabbos. He was open Shabbos. And in later years, when he, when he moved to a, to a better neighborhood, he, he would walk two miles to get to the store because he didn't want to take the bus on Shabbos. He would figure out uh, whatever math he could do in his head, he would do in his head to avoid writing on Shabbos. He had a shagitz coming in to put on the lights. There's a happy ending. His children and grandchildren are important, very highly respected Talmidi Chachamim in Rabbi Tzaytzara, in America and in Eretz Yisrael. And you attribute that to the fact that he demonstrated an adherence, a scrupulousness. His was important to him. Mm -hmm. And I, I've said many, many times, I've said many, many times, if we, if our generation, my generation, your generation, if we had had the kind of Nisyanis that they had, would we remain Shemr Shabbos? I would not want to bet on it. I would not want to bet on myself. Right. They went through terrible, terrible challenges. 
and they remained Jewish, and they wanted their children to be Jewish. So how were your parents able to do it despite the challenges financially and socially? <clears throat> they, were, they were committed. My mother was a very strong woman, and uh, her father, well, she came from Ukraine. Her mother was killed in a pogrom. So they sacrificed for the Yiddishkeit. She came to America with her father, and uh, he lived with us. He died when I'm first ever Shoshana when I was eight years old. And I think that had a big influence on the family. He was a, yes, an Elech with a beard. And my father came from Poland. Both of them had cousins in Newark. That's how they both ended up in Newark, and that's where they married. But they were both strong, committed people, committed people to Yiddishkeit. When they came over, they didn't know English, I imagine. Of course not. And uh, it was a whole new cultural experience. Cultural experience, and uh, you know, the, many of the customers in the store, especially in the early years, were, uh, were Polish, Polish goyim. So my father spoke Polish, my mother could manage in Polish. It was very interesting. And my parents were just <laughs> good people. We, I told you, we were, it was in a black neighborhood, and, uh, and most of the people were poor. And my parents, if they had no money, which was very common, my parents would sell them on credit. You know, we had little sheets of paper in a little box mm -hmm. that the name, we wrote down what they, what they took, and then eventually when they got a job, they, they would pay it off slowly. And when my parents knew that, um, that there was no money in their house, they would make the order and throw in a can of sardines or a can of salmon, extra, just, just put it in, free of charge. In Newark, what shul did you daven and what shul did your family belong to? Well, we started out in, uh, in, in the old neighborhood, and uh, I used to go to shul with my, with my grandfather, Zishtibel. And when I came into shul with him, the average age went down by about 30, 35 years. I'll give you an example of the attitude. The, the president of the shul, he was a Talmud Chochem, and he was the Baltfila, and he, he could have been president of the United States. I mean, he was a strong person. And I remember, I remember one of the old-timers saying to him, Rabbi Yossel, Mishlukin Yingvag, Lusidvan from Shtibel. Rabbi Yossel, there are no young people here. What will become of the Shtibel? He was a man of few words. He said, I won't bother giving you the Yiddish. He said, he said for us it's enough. Our children don't need it. They said about him, I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it was an exaggeration, but they said about him, he had 10 children, 10 of them ate treif on Yom Kippur, 9 of them ate treif on Yom Kippur, and the 10th one they said ate kosher on Yom Kippur. Wow. My father dived in a shul with, uh, with a chazan. He liked the chazan. And for Shani Yom Kippur, they had a choir also. The rub was Rav Kulik. Chasheva Litvisher Rav, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the old time Rav 
Hunushas and Dalit Dalit Chalke Shulchan Aruch. And um, I didn't like the shul. I mean, I had no patience for a, for a chazan. Was, you know, what does an 18-year-old need a chazan for? But um, many, many, many other shuls, of course, and almost all of them, almost all of them, when that neighborhood dried out, when all the Jews moved out, almost every single shul was sold for a church. Tragic. I know of only one shul that was not sold for a church. That was my grandfather, Stiebel. My grandfather wasn't living anymore. And my father got involved in the shul. In fact, he turned me into a Baltikeya. Once he came home, I was 17. He came home with a shoifer. He said the Baltikeya died. And this was during the summer. And he said, and you're going to blow shoifer. You're going to blow shoifer. How old were you at the time? I was 17. I had never, never held a chauffeur in my life. And I was huffing and puffing, and not a, not a sound came out of it. And finally, finally, I, I learned to blow the chauffeur. I've been, I've been about, about to gay ever since. Ever since. Oh. And we lived two miles away from the shul. And I walked to the shul Rosh Hashanah, and I got to the mikveh. And we knew the mikveh because the mikveh was two blocks away from the store. I used, to deliver, I used to deliver groceries to the mikveh lady when I was a little boy. And I come into the, I come into the mikveh, I see black nuns. And they look at me, oh, can we do something for you? And I said, I'm here, the, the Jewish uh, ritual bath. Oh, that's in the basement. The owner of the building had rented it to the uh, to this nunnery, and he kept the mikvah open and downstairs as long as they were paying rent. Need I tell you that the mikvah was not used by many women? Uh, Rabbi Tites at that time built a magnificent mikvah in Elizabeth. He also built a magnificent shul in the middle of the reform area. Now, how far was Elizabeth from Newark? Elizabeth, the, the adjoining city. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth actually adjoins Newark. No boundary in between. You know, you're, you're driving down the avenue and all of a sudden you're in Elizabeth. And obviously, people needed a mikveh that used the Elizabeth mikveh. Give you another example of what it was like in those days. Um, there's Rabbi Zev Siegel, the father of... Uh, Nachum. Father of, father of Nachum, right. Chaim Nossen. Right. And um, he, had been, he had been in the Irgun in Eretz Yisrael, in Palestine, pre-Israel. And uh, the British had a price on his head. So he came to Newark. He became Rav in the young Israel. Mm -hmm. And um, he was a strapping young man, probably 6'2", very good-looking, charismatic person. Very, very fine man, really. And he decided Newark needs a mikveh. And he organized it. He organized the, the campaign. And the older Rabbanim did not participate. Because what happened not only in Newark, but in most Jewish cities in America, they gave up hope. They, they didn't feel it was possible 
to raise religious Jews in America. They gave up. And Rabbi Siegel was not that way. He was young and dynamic and forceful. So we bought a building. I mean, I was a teenager. I, didn't, I wasn't part of the building. But uh, it was a community. And the Jewish neighbors protested. It's a bathhouse. This is a residential neighborhood. You're not allowed to have a bathhouse in a residential neighborhood. And the Rabbonim said, it's a religious function. It's not a bathhouse. Orthodox Jews must have a mikveh. <clears throat> there was a, a hearing in City Hall, the zoning board. And they asked, they tried to pack the hall, and they asked the yeshiva bochrim to come. I was in, in Teravidas in Williamsburg then. And I came, many, many of the yeshiva bochrim came. I must tell you, it was an embarrassment. Jews, Jews were getting up and saying, in Europe they needed it because there was no indoor plumbing. If there wouldn't be a mikvah, nobody would ever take a bath. But we don't need this. And we lost. We lost. And finally, um, we bought a building in a, in, in a, on, an, on an avenue that did not have that kind of zoning. So Baruch Hashem, there was, there was a mikvah in Newark. But just to give you an, an idea of the obstacles to Jewish life, and Newark was a typical city. Newark was not at all unusual. It was definitely a different world. And I imagine that going on into your next stage in life and going to a yeshiva like Tarvadas uh, was an anomaly for an American kid. How many American kids, first of all, how many yeshivas were there to go to? Very, very few. Tveres Yushalayim was, uh, it, it, it was a thriving yeshiva, but it was small, not nearly as big as Tarvadas. You had Chaim Berlin, and I don't know, I mean, you had, you, you had Baltimore, and you had yeshivas. I, I doubt, when, when I came to Tarevadas, 1945, I don't know if there were more than five or six yeshivas of that type in the country. Right. And you joined Tarevadas. What was your initial feeling when you did so? You, you hadn't been exposed to that type of intense... Torah mm-hmm. learning, that environment, mm-hmm. big time in the Chachamim. I loved it. You loved it. I loved it. But let me tell you, we had, um, sort of in the sixth grade, the, my, the Rebbe was Rev Kaplan, Rev Hirsch Kaplan. He, he was the Malamed of Rev Chaim Epstein's father in the town of Mir in Litzah. He was a magnificent Rebbe. I must tell you something about him. He taught us dig dug, you know, like his shtick was, he would have on the board, skippers. And he'd make a list of the, the best boys in the class and they're gonna skip. He's gonna see to it that they go from the sixth grade into the eighth grade. And uh, I can tell you the names of some of the skippers, really distinguished Talmud Chachamim. And, uh, and then this, this behavior, behemoth, 15. 
15 minutes that you have to, he's going to keep you in for 15 minutes after yeshiva. <laughs> and a list of names. You know, we knew that, uh, you know, he loved us and we loved him. There was, a, there was this list of the 15 minute, minute behemoths, you know. <laughs> and the principal came in, Dr. Stern, himself one of the truly great men in the, in the history of the growth of the Orthodox community. Dr. Stern came in and Rabbi Kaplan turned white. These names are on the board. He went over to the board like this, stood at the board. He erased those names with the back of his kapota. And we turned when he, when Dr. Stern left and he, he turned around, the back of his kapota was white what? from the chalk. And I've often said, you know, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbeinu, in the Mishnah, he said, he said he saw Reb Meir from the back. If he had seen Reb Meir from the front, he would have been even greater. We saw Reb Meir from the back. You know, you can hear, you can hear a hundred Musashmusen, and it won't affect you as much as seeing this man, our Rebbe, our Rebbe, erasing those names from the bad list and, and looking at his back, and his, and his back is white from chalk. Showed how much he cared about the boys. Yeah. And like you said, he loved you and you loved mm -hmm. him. And well, when I was in Masifta a couple of years later, it was a 10 minute walk from Tarvid, the Masifta Tarvadas to Yeshivikhtana. A lot of times on a Friday after class, we finished before the Yeshivikhtana, we went to visit him. Mm -hmm. And that, that relationship sustained? Not really, but it lasted for a couple of years. Right. And look, we, we all speak of him with with intense admiration. Great lesson. Now, as you moved through Tarvadas to Masifta and then to Beis Medrash, who were the other people who influenced you? Mm, well, and it sounds corny, but I never had a Rebbe that I didn't like. And um, I had, I had Rapam, third year Masifta, but today would be called 11th grade. And that was before he had a beard. But, you know, the, the, the tzitzkis, the, besides the, the, the Talmud Chochem that we all know, the, the edelkeit, the warmth, the sweetness, and all were low-key. He was not the dramatic Rebbe. He right. never was a dramatic Rebbe. Right. But he, he was the image of what a Talmud Chochem should be. And... Um, and then in, in my Masifti years, Rav Shur, Rav Gedal Yashur, we idolized him. He was, Rav Aaron Cutler said he was the first American Godel. He came to America when he was probably about 12, 12 years old, but essentially he, he grew up in America. He, he spoke English. Most of our Rebbein did not speak English. Learning in those days was Yiddish. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, I was in Rav Palm's class for a year. We did not know that he could speak English. We now, knew, at, home, at home you were speaking English or Yiddish to your parents? My parents spoke Yiddish and I answered in English. But I, but mm -hmm. I learned Yiddish at home. I learned Yiddish from my parents. Mm -hmm. when I, we, we had boys coming from out of town who, 
who couldn't speak Yiddish, and then they, they picked it up in the yeshiva. I mean, I was fortunate, Baruch Hashem, I had Yiddish-speaking parents. I spoke Yiddish at home when I was growing up, and then I started speaking English, and they answered me in Yiddish, and it was, we managed. Right. And what did Rav Shore do for you, both as a Rebbe and also in developing your learning style? Well, Rav Shore, first of all, was a, was a role model. He was, uh, he, he, was, he was young. He, he, he was a very, he was a, he was a very handsome man. And, you know, and to young American boys, that meant something. You know, I, I would never say, I, I, I would never say that the godless of Rav Shore was that he was good looking. No, of course not. But to young, to young boys, he was, that, that meant something. And he was, he, he spoke our language. He understood us. The first time I heard him was, um, it was 1948. I was in first year of ninth grade. And um, Rabbi Endelovich, who's the menial of the yeshiva, but he was already not well at all. At that point, uh, he had a very serious heart condition. He had to be in bed almost all day. And he appointed uh, Reb Yankiv, Reb Yankiv Kamenetsky Zetzal, and Reb Shur Zetzal as Komenalim. The original title was, was Menal, it became Rosh Yeshiva later. Of course, they were, they were both Magidishir, they were both Rosh Yeshiva in the sense that they said Shiurim in the Beis Medrash. And they, keep, they gave the same level Shir? Or was it one year and then. No, Reb Yankiv, uh, when Reb Yankiv had with, taught Chun Yeradeya. Mm-hmm. And Rashur had a base medrash here. And then later, he, um, after a couple of years as Manali, he had to give up the shear because there's too many responsibilities. He was saying the shear in his office, maybe a dozen Talmudim in, in his office, and constant interruptions because he was the manal of the uh, big yeshir. Trevidas in those days had 1,500 Talmudim. Wow. The dormitory had 300 boys. Tervidas was the biggest dormitory yeshiva of, of the mainstream yeshivas. But the first time I heard him was uh, when he became in Nile. I was 12 years old, the first year of Sifta. And, and he spoke. He spoke for the out he, he of towners. He spoke for the out of towners. And, and he said, the Pasuk says that Marsha Rabbeinu lived in the, near the Oyel Moyed, near the Mishkan, and called Mavakesh Hashem would come to him. And he said, you are Mavakshe Hashem. You left your homes, you're coming to Yeshiva to learn. You're Mavakshe Hashem. I'm like, wow. Me and Marsha Rabbeinu, Mavakshe Hashem. And he said a very interesting thing. He, he had a gift. He had a gift for expression. He said, at that time, the Pirche, Pirche Godes Yisrael in Williamsburg was very strong. And a lot of Bochum got became involved as leaders or helpers in one way or another. And um, which, which he encouraged. However, he wanted, you know, 
don't overdo it. And he said, he said, you, ha he said, you have to work for the tzibur, but don't forget the yachid was rufzich ich. Don't forget the individual who's called me. You know, you're, you're young, you're in the stage of life where you have to grow, and don't neglect your own growth. <laughs> my, my first personal experience with him was I was in Rapam's class, and the Rapam, Rapam brought him in to prepare the class. Now, they were about the same age, they were close personal friends. They grew up together in Taravidas. And he brought Rafshur into Fahar the class. He had the class. And, uh, and he asked me, so Taisus in Gitten. He asked me, Shatten the Taisus. And I said the Taisus. And then and he kept on. And finally, I said, the Taras Gitten, which was one of the major Mepharshim, I'm sorry for Gitten. The Taras Gitten asked, asked 14 kashas on this Taisus. And he said, E.F. Shalah Hamida. There's, there's no way to figure out the Tysmus. <laughs> and he left. And he left you alone? Uh, yeah, <laughs> left me alone. I was doing pretty well until then, but, you know, couldn't expect me to be smarter than the Taras Gitten, could you? <laughs> and a few days later, I, I, I was walking down the hall, and he was coming from the other direction. He gave me a big smile. That made my day, it made my week, it made my month. <laughs> but I, I, I became Baruch Hashem, I, was, I had a tremendous sechus, I became close to him. And how many years did you learn by Rav Shor? I was never in his class. You were never in his shir? Never in his shir. Wow. Because we hear you quote him copiously in, in speeches and writings. Him. He used to, well, first of all, now it's the, the Sefer Ergedal Yohu exists. Right. And I was able to get uh, one of his sons made tapes of his shmuzen, and um, and he let me make he let me make copies. Mm -hmm. And Rav Shur said every morning for half an hour, a phenomenal shir. I mean, he he had total recall. He could he could mention twenty twenty five different mafarshim in the course of the shir. And, you know, Ergadal Yohu is a very popular sefer, and deservedly so. Ergadal Yohu consists of, uh, of his, the Shemus in the last three years of his life when uh, he was not in good health. And, you know, in the old days, people did not have sense to record Shiurim. Today, everything is on, the, is on CD, everything is available. In those days, it wasn't done. Mm. I mean, just, just imagine, just think for a minute. If we could have the shiurim of the Tervedas Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Shlema Hyman, Rav Shor, Rav Yankif, Rav Chazan, Rav Sheps, Rav Epstein, there's hardly anything available. Was that because there was no such a thing, or just because people didn't think of it that way? Well, were there recording devices there at were the time? Record, there were recording devices. They were big, heavy, literally heavy, mm -hmm. and, and clumsy, and um, not cassettes, round big reels, reels, and the 
and, and the tape would often, often get stuck. Mm -hmm. But then it was also, it was frowned upon. You don't record a shear, you had to listen to a shear. Mm -hmm. If you had to take notes, take notes, but you listen to a shear. It's not a performance. But then later it became, this, it became the thing to do. Now you mentioned Rav Chazan, who I believe was giving the highest shear in Tarvadas when you mm -hmm. were there. Right. And after you completed his shear, you moved on to Beismeder Shalian. right. Who made that decision for you, that that would be the direction to take? Well, you know, if, if you're a good bocher and you wanted to learn, Beismeder Shalian was a place to go. The only comparable yeshiva to Beismeder Shalian was, uh, was Lakewood. And in those years, Beismeder Shalian was bigger and a higher quality than Lakewood. Mm -hmm. And who were for a very simple reason, because because Taravadas, this Medrashalian had Bochum who went through Taravadas. So it was like a feeder. We, it was a feeder. Some, yeah, we had some uh -huh. outsiders coming also. Right. For again, Rabbi Shmuel Tobenfeld, you know, uh -huh. one of the great Ge'inim of, of the period. And he was Nifter at the age of fifty-six or fifty-seven, but um, he came he came from Europe after the war, and he was in. And he was came straight to Rav Chazan Shir, But it was taken for granted. If you if you were a good if you're a good bacher and you wanted to learn, you went to Beis Medrashelyan. Who were some of your contemporaries at the time in Beis Medrashelyan? Um, Mendel Weinbach, Nissen Wolpen, Ruben Scheiner, Rav Chaim Baruch Wolpen, um, the other Wolpen brothers, Rav Kalevsky. It was Rashivin and Neri Shul. Meshav David Steinvarsel, who was Rashivin, Bobov. It was really an honor roll. Oh. And the Rosh Hashiva. And Rav Simchashustel. Right. And the Rosh Hashiva the the were Rav Gedalia Shor and Rav Ruven Grzovsky at the time. Well, Rav right? Ruven Grzovsky was Rashivin, Beismet Hashalian, and in Taravidas. Right. And, um, was there a daily or weekly share delivered by either of them at the time? No. No. So you learned no. Bechabura. You learned Bechabura. And Reb Reuven had the stroke actually two years before I came to this. I never heard a share from him. Mm -hmm. he, had a, he had a stroke just when I was coming in to the Beis Medrash. And I was Meshamish him. I was a big schus. Um, when he was in the hospital in uh, Columbia Presbyterian, uh, I, there were times when I was there overnight in, in Muncie. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we took turns, we took shifts, staying with him overnight. I, was, I blew Schreifer for him. He couldn't come to the yeshiva, he was paralyzed. Mm -hmm. But um, even, though, even though he wasn't saying shiurim during my time in Basemeter Shalian, but the aura was still there. Mm -hmm. When you spoke about the Rosh Yeshiva, it was proven. You know that that at the atmosphere that he created re remained, and especially since uh, when I came in, there's there's still older Bochrim who had heard Shurim from him. And at the, the right at the time, Beis Medrashelians in Muncie, and your parents were still living in Newark at the time. Right. How often did you get to go home and see them? In Bezmedesh Elyon, the Takana was you went, you, went for, you went home for a Shabbos once in six weeks. 
if you wanted to cheat, you went once in five weeks. Mm -hmm. But that was it. Yeah. There was no policeman. There was a mashkiach. There was an Adam Godel Admiral, Rabbi Shrochan Kaplan. But um, he wasn't the mashkiach in the sense that he took attendance and he was on your, down your back. He was right. the, the, the mashpiach, the, the, the classic mashkiach. And you were in Beis Medrash when you reached marriageable age. What, yeah. what happened at that point when you ent entered the Pasha of Shaduchim? No, I went out like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I had Siyad Rishmaya. My wife, my wife, Alero Shalom, was the, the second young woman that I saw. So Baruch Hashem, I had tremendous Siyad Rishmaya. Not only that, not only that, I didn't have to keep going on and on and on, but to have such a wife. And then I was in the Kailu for four years. Post-marriage, you learned for four years, and then at that point, what did you feel you wanted to do, I if want, we would call it career-wise? I wanted to be in Chinuch. I wanted to be in Chinuch. And I had a, I had a, I was promised a Masifta position in a, in a certain yeshiva, and I don't, I don't want to get into names, as you'll, understand why in a few seconds. And then there was, there was a machlokas in the yeshiva, and I was considered to be too close to the losing side. Mm -hmm. And the winning side decided that, uh, how could I be loyal? Maybe they couldn't trust me. All right, so I, I ended up um, working in a, being a shipping manager for a year. I was, I, this happened during the summer, and I was high and dry. And then Baruch Hashem, um, Reb Lipa Margolis, the founder and the head of Shiva Torah Tamima, which at that time was called Torah Vadasa Flatbush, he called me, he offered me a position, and I was there for eight years. In what capacity? I was a Rebbe all eight years. I was also Sagan the Nile. And for the last three years, I was, uh, I was, I was English principal. And then I went to Stalin. I was in Manal in Stalin for six years. And then um, Mary Zlotowicz enticed me, twisted my arm, <laughs> and brought me into art scroll. And who made that shidduch between you and Reb Meir? A very interesting story. Um, my, my very dear friend, Nissen Wolpen, was editor of the Jewish Observer. And I, I, I used to write articles occasionally. He asked me to write. I wrote articles. I wrote an article about um, the Chafetz Chaim coming to the first Knesset Gedola in Vienna. It's called Chafetz Chaim in Vienna. And uh, Mayer read it, and he liked it. And he had Avi Shulman, who's himself one of the really, really good people in American Chinuch. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah, of course. Oh, Avi Shulman. Sure. Yeah. And, um, and at that time, he, he was working for Art Scroll. That was before Art Scroll was Art Scroll. So Art Scroll at the time was a studio? At that, at Art Scroll was a, was a studio, did wedding, wedding invitations and did brochures and uh, colored you know, plaques and things like that. That's where the name Art Scroll came from. Mm -hmm. Artistic Scrolls. <clears throat> And Mary said to him, 
I'd love to meet the person who wrote this article. And Avi said, he's my friend. And he introduced us. And from then occasionally, Mary would ask me to, to write copy for a, for a brochure mm -hmm. that he was doing. And then, you know, little by little, the, the, the friendship developed, the relationship developed. And when he was uh, embarked on doing Megillus Esther, you know the story of Megillus Esther. Right, I mean, it's a, quite well known by now. Yeah. But when, when you were doing that initial copywriting for Reb Meir, you were still in a chinuch position. I was still in a chinuch so position. You're still working in a chinuch, doing that know, on the side. Anybody in a chinuch position, then even more than now, even today, right. when you have a kanan hori, you have a growing family, you need some side income, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, in those, in the good old days, if you were only two months behind in salary, you were doing very good well. Shape. <laughs> it was unusual to be only two months behind. Right, right. So some side income never hurt. And um, <clears throat> so he was doing me Gilles Esther, and he asked me if I would edit. And I edited afternoon and, uh, and evening. And I'm then curious was, about that. He, he, we, we know the well-known story about how Rameyer undertook to write Megillus Esther, Lila Nishmas, his chaver, mm, Rameyer Fogel. Fogel. Now, did he give you the manuscript as he was writing to edit, or did he finish the whole manuscript and then give it no, to as, you? as he was doing it. As he was doing it. It was being typeset, and I got, the, I got the galleys, and I edited the galleys. So it was, already, it was being sent to Ripshia Brander to do the actual typesetting, and you were editing mm. that, or were you mm. editing his, his written notes? No, I, I edited after it was typed. After it was typed. And what did you think, what was your first reaction to this commentary that was being written by Reb Meir. It, was, it turned out to be revolutionary, but did you mm. realize that at the time? No. No, no I, I didn't. I didn't realize at the time. I thought I, thought I was just doing a favor for a friend. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that he would pay me. <laughs> <laughs> right? He asked me to help out, so I helped out, and then all of a sudden there's a check. And then he asked me to... Uh, to do an introduction, right. which, which we called an overview. An overview became the standard. Uh, sure. Your overview. About 50, 60 overview since right. then. I've never... It became synonymous with, with the art scroll volumes. Right. And so let's talk about that for a moment, the overview. How do you go about writing an overview? Do you, do you have certain svarim that you go to? Do you sit on it and think about it for a few days? What, what, what's the process? I, I start learning Svarim. <clears throat> um, but I, in the early days, what I, re, what I remembered from Rav Shur, there was nothing in writing yet. Um, I would look in Svasemis, I would look in Rav Sadek, look in Meral. I would just immerse myself in the subject. And then, uh, and then, then, then I would start writing. I remember the first, uh, the first couple of overviews. We, we lived in Borough Park, and I went to, a, went to a library, public library. I think it was in Bensonhurst. I didn't want to do it in Borough Park because I, need, because I knew people, people to come in and they start talking. So I sort of wanted to isolate myself. I had a couple of sperm with me, and I wrote. I couldn't type. I'd never typed in my life. So writing longhand? Longhand, writing longhand. And... It just took shape as I was writing. 
I was never, <clears throat> I was never disciplined enough, and still I'm not disciplined enough, to make an outline. Mm -hmm. I just write. I immerse myself in the in the subject, and I have ideas what I want to say, and I and I start writing, and, and the writing takes shape as I'm doing it. Can I ask how long an overview took at that time and over the years? How many hours are we talking about? Uh, I, I couldn't break it down into hours. It's, in, in terms of time, it's also hard because I would, I would be learning things. You know, when the Safer is in progress, I now have to be, I'll be doing an overview. So during my free time, at night or on Shabbos or Sunday, I, I'll be looking at Svarim. How many hours that took? Well, who knows? There's only Rabbi Shalom knows. The actual writing could take um, could take a week or so. Now, getting back to the Megas Esther, you edit the manuscript, you finish the overview, Rameir releases the Megas Esther, and the feedback is just off the charts. Off the charts. What was what was that like for you when you started hearing? that it's selling 20,000 copies, I think it was, within the first... I think it was uh, 25. 25 within the first... Between 20 and 25, for sure. Within the first year. And then Mayor contacts you again. What was the next step? Well, you know, it was supposed to be a one-shot thing. It was right. this memorial occurring for his dear friend. And that's all. I mean, I was... I, my, my career was Chinuch. And his career was art school studio. But uh, it, it took off. And, uh, and people encouraged us, you have to continue. You see, what happened was, that, you know, the, it was the old, the old cliche, an idea whose time had come. It's very, impo very important to understand the, the, the role of art school and why art school had to continue. It's very important to understand this. You had, you, you had a generation, a generation and a half of, uh, of, of Bacharim who went to yeshiva and, and girls who went to Beis Yaakov. Some went post high school and some didn't go post high school, but they, learning is safer was, was an effort. We could read, but learning was hard. So here you have something for the very first time. It was really the very first time. It's, uh, it, it gives you a sefer in, in Tanakh, and it gives you a readable commentary and an introduction, and it's in your language and uh, decently written. Hey, where, where was this? Why didn't I have this when I was in yeshiva? So the idea whose time had come, nobody realized it until then. I would add also... Mayer didn't realize it until then. It was only after Megillus Esther came out that, that we realized that something happened. The Rabbanishal made this, this accident happen. Right. I just wanted to add a, the, that the fact that it was authoritative and scholarly as well, meaning that it was on, a, on an acceptable level as far as Torah scholarship. Mm -hmm. The level of scholarship is not comparable to what we have today. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that kind of manuscript today would not be accepted. Mm-hmm. We've, Baruch Hashem, it's come, we've come a long way since then. Right. But at the time, it, it, was, a, it was a good job. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. It really was a good job, more than just acceptable. Right. And uh, we were encouraged to continue. How can you stop? Don't, don't you see how important it is? So we went on to Megillus Rus, and then... And again, and, you were doing the editing and the overview. Right. Reb Meir did the commentary. And I was still in the yeshiva. And you were still in yeshiva. Yeah, and I was in the yeshiva for another year after that. Mm-hmm. And then, also another uh, a milestone. We got a letter from, from Rav Gifter, Zechran Livrocha, saying how much he enjoyed it and how important it is and how... Is it very, very, very complimentary. And a man, I mean, a man of that stature takes the trouble to write a two-page handwritten letter. And he didn't know any of you personally at the time. No, no, no. Neither one of us. And uh, so Mayor said, we we have to go and visit him. So we made an appointment, and we, we flew out to Cleveland. We had lunch with him. And his son-in-law, Avram Chaim Foyer, came in the middle and sat with us. And he became one of our very popular authors. <laughs> and Rav Gifter said that uh, he, he would like to participate. He says, send him galleys and he'll, he'll, he'll comment, which he did for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. We sent him galleys and he, and he sent back notes. Fascinating. Which was very important for another reason. Because of all the, the great Russia yeshiva, Rav Gifter was the one who was, uh, who was absolutely fluent in English. He was American-born. He was an American-born. American right. And so at meetings with the other Russia yeshiva, Rav Yankov, uh, Rav Ruderman, yeah. he spoke about this, and he spoke about how important it is and how, and how, it's, how important it is to encourage it, which opened the door for us. I, I, I had become close to Rabbi Yankov over the years. <clears throat> in the later years in Tervadas and, uh, and in Muncie, especially after, after my marriage, he was my, he was my Masada Kedushin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my wife's family was very close to Rabbi Yankov. So through them, I, I developed a much closer relationship to him. And... Uh, Rebianka was, was a man, he, he didn't just give out complimentary letters. He measured every word. He heard from Rav Gifter, and, and he asked Rabbi Elias, Rabbi Yosef Elias, to read some of our, of our svarim and report to him. And Rabbi Elias said that they are good. Mm-hmm. So Rebianka became uh, our foremost supporter. How long did it take till you decide to move out of the realm of Chinuch and throw yourself full-time into what had become now a major endeavor mm-hmm. of dissemination of Tyra? Yeah, well, I started working on Megillus Esther, must um, be around Hanukkah time, and it came out before, before Purim in 1976. And I finished out, I finished out that year in Stalin, working working uh, full-time in Stalin and full-time 
in our school. How do you do that? I don't know, but it happened. And the next year, I went into art school full time. And at time, Ripshia, at the time, Ripshia Brander was doing the design. You were doing mm. the right. editing. Ripshia was Ripshia was part of art school. He was studios. part of art school studios. And what was your next big project that you worked on once the Megillus had been put out? The um, the Chumash, Mayor's Bracious, mm-hmm. masterpiece. Right, masterpiece. It's, it's, it's one of the tragedies, one of the minor tragedies, but a tragedy in Jewish life, that um, he wasn't able to continue and, and do the other chemoshim because right. his responsibilities just increased to the point where he, he could not manage to sit and write anymore. And after that, you undertook to put out the Siddur. The Mishnayis. Or the Mishnayis first. Right. And, um, and again, your role was doing the, the major editing? Editing, yeah. And who was writing there was the a, com- There was a time when I, read it, when I edited everything. Mm-hmm. And after a few years, that became impossible. Right. So there were the projects that I edited, and I, did some, I, I, I wrote and I edited, and I was available whenever right. I was needed for anybody else. But um, it's just impossible to read, read everything and certainly... Impossible to edit everything. So you complete the Megillus, Mishnayis, as you mentioned before, the Chumash Sefer Bracious that Ramea wrote, and the next big project is the Art Scroll Siddur. Mm-hmm. What was the process and the evolution of writing the translation and the commentary mm-hmm. for what would become Klal Yisrael's go-to Siddur with an English translation? Interesting story. Uh, we have... Somebody who was working with us at the time in charge of sales, Steve Blitz. Now he's in charge of our uh, Israel office. We, Mayor and I want to do a sitter like, like the Bracious. There'll be four or five volumes and complete and explain everything and bring the Mepharshim. And Blitz said, you're crazy. Who's going to use such a sitter? You need a sitter that, that people will use in shul. You need a sitter that people can actually daven from every day. And he was right. Oh, was he right. So anyway, so the idea of the sitter was, I mean, first of all, the translation had to be, it had to be accurate, but also it had to be readable. And the commentary had two goals. First of all, to explain the difficult language. Things have to be explained in the sitter, obviously. <clears throat> but more than that, we wanted the sitter to be something that would inspire people. They would daven, they would have feeling for what they're davening. It, it could affect them, it could affect their lives. And uh, so, so when I chose what to include in the sitter, aside from shot, of course, which is essential, you have to explain, people have to understand what they're saying. But aside from that, the commentary had to be something that would, that would appeal to people, that would make them feel closer to, closer to God. And Baruch Hashem, we, we had Seyad HaDishmaya. It, it, it clicked. Over the years, we've had any number of people who've, uh, who've called us or who met us or who wrote us that the sitter changed their lives. And more than a few 
who said they became Bali Chuva because of the Siddur. And the Siddur was unique because not only did you have a commentary, but it also had instructions, <clears throat> which I think is an overlooked but a very, very important component. Yeah. Like Avi Gold, who was uh, one of our editors at the time, Avi said, it tells you when to hop, skip, and jump. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's also something, it's and, true. And uh, no other Siddur had that before. Exactly. And over here it was clear. Plus the collection of Dinam in the back. Right. Absolutely. That was also important. But in writing the commentary, was there a system that you used to decide what to include and what not to? I'm sure in a, on a certain level it was harder to cut down than it was to find material because, like you said, you could have written five volumes on the Siddur. So what system do you use to determine what to include and what not to? I try to put myself into the, into the position of the reader. Give you an example. Um, when I was in Rapam's class, we spoke about Rapam before. I asked Rapam, what could I undertake another limud aside from the from the regular yeshiva curriculum? And he said, learn the Vim Rishonim with the Mitsudas. And it was what the Mitsudas does, what I felt at the time, is as if I was writing it, because he just tells you what you need to understand what the POSIC is saying. So in response to your question, how did, how did I pick what to include? First of all, I put myself into the position of a reader who doesn't know much about the sitter, which was very easy for me because I didn't know much about the sitter either. What do I need to understand it? And also, something that, that appealed to me, that inspired me when I read it, and I felt that it would inspire the other readers as well, I would put that in. I avoided complicated things. Because when somebody's davening, you know, you, you're not learning the iyun. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's more like dafyomi than, the, <laughs> than an iyun seder. Right. Now, the style of the seder, with the Hebrew on one side, English on the, on the other, commentary on bottom. Was that the initial vision that you had for the Siddur? Yeah, because that's what we had in the Mishnayis and the Chumash also. Right. Because it's interesting that later on, transliterated became a, a popular option. And Translinear, not transliterated, correct. Um, what we call interlinear, rather. Mm -hmm. um, interlinear. There, is, there is a transliterated Siddur, but that's something else entirely. Right. So the interlinear option, some people like, but you, you went with the opposite pages and with the commentary on bottom, and that it took off. I mean, the Siddur has sold literally millions of copies. Right, it's true. And is still, to this day, the classic Siddur. You could say it stood the test of time. And, true. And um, it must be an incredible feeling to have impacted people's tefillah in that fashion. It's, it's, it's humbling to feel that Rabbani Shleilam let me be the shliach to do that. I, I, don't, I don't have the words to describe it, but it's humbling.